0: Welcome to the Teaching in Medicine podcast, where we explore effective teaching of the healthcare providers of tomorrow. I am your host, Dr. Kathleen Timmy. Well, I am honored to welcome Ms. Jean Shipman to the podcast today. Ms. Shipman is a librarian emerita at the University of Utah School of Medicine in the Department of Biomedical Informatics. She is currently retired and living in Virginia, but had a long and impressive career including roles as the VP of Global Library Relations for Elsevier and the Executive Director of Knowledge Management for the Eccles Health Sciences Library. She has held many positions across the country, has co-edited two books, and has served as president of the Medical Library Association. She is here today to discuss her longstanding interest and expertise in the field of health literacy, and as clinician educators, we have so much to learn from her. So thank you for being here, Jean. We really appreciate it.
1: You're welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: Great. So can we start out just by having you help us to understand what is health literacy?
1: Sure. And a lot of people think that it's being able to read. And definitely literacy is exactly that, being able to read. But health literacy takes it even beyond reading ability to understanding what is being um, told to you about your health. So it's got numeracy involvement, like do you need to know how to read nutrition labels, how to read prescription labels, um, and what does that mean when that prescription tells you to take it twice a day, what does that really mean? So literacy is a part of it, but it's really understanding what you can do as a patient or what you can do as a person to help uh, contribute to your care, your personal health care. I'm glad
0: that you brought up numeracy as well. So I take care of kids with diabetes and part of our education is teaching the family how to carb count and how to come up with insulin doses. And I always kind of assumed if, you know, families were able to read the literature we were providing that they would be able to count the carbs and add up numbers. And then I've come across with a handful of families that what we think of as maybe more simple addition, you know, adding two units plus three units is not always very easy for families. And I appreciate that you brought up the numeracy issue as well. I didn't quite realize that until I
1: encountered it in person. Yeah, exactly. And also just cultural differences. Um, One favorite story I have is about spoon a teaspoon, you know, be real specific, what size of spoon, because a lot of cultures have varying sizes of teaspoons even, so, you know, being able to give milligrams, but then do they have something that measures milligrams or milliliters um, is confusing to them too, so being as specific as possible.
0: (laughs) Those are great points. Um, So why is improving our country's health literacy level important?
1: Yeah, I think there's multiple reasons, and I'll go with the more um, empathetic ones first. Is that If people understand what's happening to them, they'll probably more, be more compliant and wanting to engage with helping to improve their health. A lot of times it's a mystery. Uh, the body is, I think, better known to people, but there's still a lot of mystery to it. And if we can demystify that aspect of the, what you can do to help your providers, it gives them that uh, feeling of empowerment and entitlement. And also, when you come to looking at um, limited resources of healthcare, being able to know when you need to seek help and when you can do some self um, prevention or else self treatment is really important too to help reduce utilization of limited resources, but also to reduce healthcare costs. And I think the other um, main thing is that with meaningful use, um, that we've been working on with electronic health records. We're actually being encouraged to inform patients, not only inform them, but also make sure that they understand the information that's being given to them. And that is the hardest aspect of health literacy. I can, as a librarian, I throw out tons of information to people, but rarely do I have time to go back to them and say, well, did you do anything with that information I gave you? Or what part didn't you understand? Or could I help you find more information on a certain aspect of the health? So, there's just so much um, involved with health literacy, and it's just is really important that people feel that they can be a part. But I think if they are a part, they're more satisfied, they're more compliant, and then the best use of resources are, are being made.
0: And are there certain populations that are more vulnerable to low
1: health literacy? I think it's, it goes with the seven determinants of health. There are definitely differences in education that makes health literacy levels of variance. There's definitely socioeconomic issues uh, if people have, usually it leads to education, if they have the ability to uh, afford an education. Um, But there's also health disparities. And we're seeing that even more, I think, with the COVID-19, you know, that uh, people who are with chronic conditions already are more prone to having COVID-19. And that um, leads to those who have more health disparities uh, actually probably could use a lot more assistance with understanding what health information is given to them.
0: And what got you interested in health literacy?
1: Yeah, I have to think a little bit about this because there are a couple of things. Um, in my professional career, one thing I've done is create some consumer libraries. I did at VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University, we opened up two patient libraries or basically consumer libraries. And then at Utah, we actually opened one up in the hospital lobby as well. But I think personally, it was when my father came home, diagnosed recently with cancer. And he had been to, I, don't, I can't tell you how many funerals of people with cancer, how many relatives had died with cancer. But he looked at me, because goes, I don't even know what that is. What is that? And it had just dawned on me that, you know, all this time he was talking the talk and telling people about cancer and had no clue what it really was. So I think that's really important um, to understand as providers that people can talk to you, like as if they understand what you're talking about or repeat back to you the words, but do they really understand what's behind those words? And that's where It takes some effort to engage with them to take um, that next level to just providing information to making sure they understand what you're providing.
0: And as healthcare providers, how can we assess a patient's health literacy? Perhaps if we're meeting them for the first time, how do we get a baseline of what their understanding is?
1: Yeah, um, and this is one of the hard parts, too. And there's tons of, not tons, but there's various uh, scales and measurement tools out there but in a clinical setting where you have a limited time to spend with the patient, you really aren't going to be able to administer those tools. But in the information I've given you to put with this podcast, there are a list of um, places where you can go to find assessment tools if you're interested and, and want to do research on it, definitely. But I say look at some cues. Um, you know, if you have a person who seems to be following, give them a sheet of information upside down and see if they turn it around and to read it. Because um, that's a real clue. You know, if they start reading as, as if they're reading it when it's upside down, that, that means to me that they're not able to read. The other thing is looking at if they have a patient uh, family member with them, if they refer to them a lot, that may mean that they're not understanding what you're saying or that that person serves as an intermediary between you and them for language understanding. And that's oftentimes true with when English isn't the first language. The other thing is just um, ask them to kind of talk back with you. And there's this whole thing called teach back. And it's really not meant to be a separate tool. but it's And it's not meant to assess the knowledge they have of what you're telling them. But it's assessing what they have heard from you. So instead of asking open-ended questions like, do you know what I'm saying? Or do you understand what I just asked you to um, do? And they say, uh-huh, sure. It's like, well, tell me, you know, tell me what you're going to do with this when you get home. You know, how many times are you going to take this? You know, what kind of tool measurement spoon are you going to use if it's a liquid? So it gives them that chance to kind of retell you what you've told them. Yeah,
0: I think you can learn so much about your own teaching and their understanding when you have somebody read it back to you. And even teaching in medicine, we use that a lot with learners. Like, I was on call last night and had a few more complicated plans for patients. And I, I asked the resident, can you just let me know, like, what your understanding of the plan is? And um, just because it's safety, you know, if, if your patient goes home and they don't understand the dose of the medication or what the follow-up plan is, it could have, you know, pretty serious and immediate consequences. So I'm not
1: a Spanish speaker, but I just learned it once, O-N-C-E is 11 in Spanish. Yeah. So, if you say take a le- you know, once a day, does that mean take it eleven times a day?
0: Um, that is a great point. I speak Spanish. I've never thought about that, but once or is spelled as you know, we would see once is eleven. Yeah. So, yeah, that's so
1: really it's, interesting. There's kind of, you know, unknowns out there that can add to confusion.
0: Yeah, tell me more about the brief back or the teach back and its use.
1: Yeah, I think it it really was meant to help with this idea of. Can you uh, quickly assess what they're understanding? And again, it's not to know about the topic, what they know about the topic, but what you've instructed them to do. And I think it can take various forms. And I, I would just be sure to not use open-ended or closed questions, use open-ended questions um, when you're teaching back. Now, there was something, um, I think it was the AMA that created this called Ask Me 3. And it was this idea that there's three key questions that you can ask patients to remember and ask next time and ask their other providers. And that is uh, the three questions are, what is my main problem? What do I do need to do with this problem? And why is it important for me to do this? So I think, again, it's simple tools, but it gives them a little bit of a concrete reference to use when they go to somebody and say, well, why... What what is my problem? What should I do about it? And why do I need to do this? I love AMA has a lot of health literacy tools. And they had this one video where a woman had had a hysterectomy. And she said, I didn't know what that was, but I felt too stupid to ask. And then when I found out what it was, I was just uh, mortified that how could I have been, you know, led down this path that I just went on with them because I didn't ask the question, what is this and why is it important to me? So I think, you know, we can't help um, but ask enough times, you know, is this, what are you going to do with this medicine or how often a day will you be taking this? How many, you know, and if you have to go even with like signs of like the moon, uh, the sun, you know, take it in the morning, take it at night. Um, Graphics are a key tool, especially if you're looking at someone who you think, well, this language is probably a barrier. Use graphics, have some Flashcards handy that have, you know, like the moon and the sun for daytime and nighttime. I think there's
0: this tendency as healthcare providers that if a patient comes in and they're not doing what you thought you explained well last time to blame the patient. Um, And I think you can really, you need to blame yourself first and think about, you know, what didn't I explain correctly? What materials did I not provide that I should have? Did I not have soon enough follow up? Did I not check in with this patient? Before we just assume that people don't want to take care of their health care, I think in general, people want to be well um, and, and want to do the best for their health and that that should be the baseline assumption and that we may be communicated incorrectly as much as that might hurt an ego rather than saying, oh, this patient just doesn't get it or doesn't care.
1: Well, I feel so um, sorry for the providers because you go through all this training and using the Latin words and learn all this hard, you know, medical terminology, and then you're asked to come into clinical practice and kind of forget all that and and be able to use plain language and talk, you know, at a level of simplicity. It's almost like you're two people. (laughs) So I understand why it's so hard. And and yet I appreciate when people do uh, talk to me in simple terms and one example I had was I had started a new job in a hospital library and one physician wanted me to come up immediately and talk to you know, me about being a new librarian. And then I went to him as a provider. And first thing he, he gave me was all this sheets of information about what he thought I had. And the very first sentence was, you're going to die. And I just went, I'm going to die. You know, did I hear anything else? He said the rest of the visit. No. <laughs> and so that's why I think, you know, even, Literate people can be health illiterate when there's a stressful diagnosis or a stressful cause um, for people to just kind of tune out. I love if it, anything comes out of this podcast for people to remember that that the most educated person can be health illiterate when it's their personal health that's being discussed and and a, at a stressful diagnosis. Luckily, I didn't die, as you can tell. Well, we're <laughs> so g-
0: grateful that you're here.
1: <laughs> I didn't have the disease, but it was just, it. he just thought I could absorb it because of being a medical librarian, and it still was just yeah. like, oh, no, you know, beyond my uh, comprehension right now. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, I think even as a, a subspecialty physician, when I see a physician for an issue that doesn't have to do with pediatric diabetes, I often don't quite understand the evaluation or what's going on. We just get so specialized that no matter who's coming into the office, I think you really have to be thoughtful about how you explain things and and just assume that you, you need to teach them from the beginning. And if they tell you otherwise, like, oh, I already understand this or I have this experience, then fine, but always assume to teach more than less. Right. Good point. Yeah. Our earlier conversation got me thinking too about how important it is to set up a safe learning environment, which we talk about, you know, in the classroom setting or in the clinical education setting. But I think with patients too, setting up some environment where, you know, there are no dumb questions. I want you to understand what's going on. Please ask me questions um, so that they don't feel bad or they don't feel like they're going to offend you by asking like that situation with the hysterectomy just breaks my heart that she didn't feel comfortable with her provider saying, I really don't understand. Can you take the time to explain it to me? So I think it starts like from the first time you meet somebody that this is really complicated. I'm going to do my best to explain it. I don't expect you to understand everything I'm saying, but please stop me when there's something I need to clarify.
1: Yeah. And I think there's um, generational differences. I know my mother was very afraid of Countering a physician with a different opinion or even telling them what was wrong with her. You know, one day she came home and I said, Well, you told him this, this, and this. She goes, Well, no, I figured he'd figure it out. And I was like, Mom. You know, yeah. you know so there's kind of this, um, I hate to say God like impression. As a physician, especially, there's still a lot of reverence given to your degree and your uh, knowledge. And that's awesome. It really is. It, but yet it can inhibit people from feeling safe yeah. and. Uncomfortable. And and I worked um, in the summers in my college career in the pharmacies, and I can only repeat how often people would come in, get their prescriptions filled, and then want to talk to the pharmacist because they didn't ask the questions of the doctor. But the pharmacist was less uh, threatening, not even threatening, but less of a person for them to take time of. um, They felt more comfortable. And I see it with medical librarianship too. In the consumer libraries, people would come from their visits and say, Well, I got this information, but now I need someone to help me understand it and, and we would sit down and, and go through the content that they were given and then try to provide extra information without giving them diagnosis or misinformation. Which is always hard too. So so I think as a provider, one of the Other things to remember is that you're not in this alone. There are other healthcare team members out there who can help spend time with patients. And and medical librarians or health science librarians are just an example of that. There's health educators, there's nursing educators. There's a lot of other people who you can work with as a team to help inform. And in fact, when I was at Utah, what we tried to do was do a circle so that we as a provider of information in the consumer library would document in a medical record what we had given the patient so that the provider could see that what information was given and know, you know, if it matched what they wanted or if there was something else they wanted us to give. We never quite got it done, but I still think that's an important part of the cycle is to keep everybody involved and and the lines of communication open of what's shared.
0: So if you're fortunate enough to have a consumer library, how can you best encourage patients to use it? And, and what would their experience be like when they got there? Yeah,
1: you know, one thing we tried was an information prescription. Um, everyone's very comfortable, it seems like, with filling prescriptions for medication. And it was t- kind of taking that same idea that a provider would write a, the diagnosis on a pad that looked like a prescription. And then ask them to come to the consumer library with that information, so that often helped because, I, again, knowing how often people come in and say, "I think I was told I had hypothyroidism, but is that hyperten—is that blood pressure a problem?" You know, it's just, and then you're like, "Well, what, what what was really the diagnosis?" And and then they pull out a sheet and say, "Well, it's this. And it's it was totally different." You know, so it was kind of a way to again um, not have that error of communication happen if it's written down and, and something they can pass on. And then they can also look at it later, as they will probably on the Internet, if they're um, interested at all in finding out more information. And, and that's a great point. When the Internet came in about mid-career of my time, it was great because there's so much information out there for people. But it's also uh, a double sword in that there's so much information that's not accurate also out there and people needed help in kind of identifying what were good websites to look at for health information, what were bad, or, you know, like Quack Doctor was one that we would often use internally to know what was bad um, information. So so I think uh, the internet can be a blessing in that people can get help, but be prepared as a provider that someone may come in with a lot of information um, from the internet and then ask you to kind of evaluate it for them. Is it good or bad? And that's where you can also engage with a partnership with a librarian to, to say, well, the, why don't you, you know, go to the consumer library and they'll help you look at what a website, different parts of a website are, like who who wrote the website? How often is it kept updated? Is it free of biases like from pharmaceutical company or is it representing, you know, one person's opinion? Things like that. So I think consumer libraries can be an extension, and we really tried in all the ones I worked in to make sure the provider was engaged in it, too, so that it's not adversarial to set up, you know, what are they telling them versus what I'm telling them as a provider. That was never the intention at all. So,
0: And I think that's a huge service that you provide, like being willing to look through the information they come in with and the sites that they've looked at and helping them to vet resources and also educate on how to find high quality resources. And that's something that as providers, we probably don't have quite enough time to do, but it's such a service that a librarian can provide.
1: And I often say as a librarian, you know, that's my job is to, to watch all these things that are being developed and pick through and filter the best ones. I can't imagine that you as a provider have to add all that onto your job as well. So, you know, make sure to apply the. The knowledge of the expert at the best level of practice.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so say we're in a resource limited area and we don't have access to a health science library, are there other places that we can refer patients for more assistance with understanding the information they're provided?
1: There are. um, And there's a network of medical libraries called the National, um, or actually the Network of National Library of Medicine. There are eight contractual offices throughout the country. And they get funding to provide information to patients or to come and teach to different groups, including healthcare providers. So that's one um, place a provider can look is that it's now called the Network of the National Library of Medicine. Acronym is NNLM. Um, That's one source available to anybody. Um, And they will also inform anyone who calls in where their local library is. But what Medical librarians have also done is partner with public libraries because um, usually any community of some size will have a public library, and we would help train the public librarians um, of, again of the key knowledge resources out there, especially consumer-related. Like uh, Medline Plus is one website from the National Library of Medicine that has a lot of multilingual as well as graphic material uh, videos on healthcare at a level for a consumer. So there's, the network is trying not to make anyone a lonesome person um, in the US, and it is a tie-in to be able to bring you to some source of information.
0: Great, and I'll definitely include in the show notes on anchor.fm slash teaching in medicine, these resources that we're talking about and others, so you can access them if you're interested. I wanted to circle back to communication and kind of what we can do or say as providers. We had talked about Ask Me 3, um, brief backs and teach backs. Are there other tips that you have that we could use in the clinical setting to help patients understand?
1: I would say um, the just watching the cues that they give, you know, if, if they just keep nodding their head, All the time, they probably aren't absorbing everything that you're saying. (laughs) Um, So ask them questions that are open-ended. Ask, you know, to repeat if you use a prescription or any kind of. It doesn't have to be a prescription; just any kind of pad. Just write it down and and then ask them to tell you what that term may mean. Or like use high blood pressure instead of hypertension if you can, and that helps people to to demystify the terms as well. So I think you use a lot of common sense. You know, what if you have children, think about what their understanding is at different ages. Also, if you're designing materials, you use a lot of graphics, use a lot of uh, what's universal design so that it's consistent for any type of community or uh, culture. And there's a lot of assistance out there on designing patient education materials. There's also a lot of information out there for patients. and Good source of other information are the different associations, like American Diabetic Association, American Heart Association. Those resources are usually vetted very well um, and are trust trustful information. Unfortunately, WebMD is not a site that I would recommend. Um, It used to be very good and then it became more commercial. So I tend to steer away from commercial sites unless there's a lot of information on them that indicate the source. Of the information, like is there a team of providers that are writing the content, embedding the content?
0: And those are great points. I work with the Pediatric Endocrine Society on their education committee in a group that designs materials for patients, and so we go through a whole process of the content expert looking at it. It also has to be approved by the American Academy of Pediatrics. And we have to ensure that it's written at about a fifth grade reading level and no more advanced than that. And it's it's really a, a long and thoughtful process thinking about what you put out there for patients. So I would imagine that other societies have a similar, you know, path that you could trust. Right. Yeah. Um, what role do you think educational material should play in teaching patients? I have to think about, you know, the most important thing is what we say and do in person, but what role can this supplementary material have?
1: Yeah, and I think that will vary on the individual. I mean, some individuals are analytical types um, and probably will read everything that you give them. Others will probably just walk out and throw it in the trash and never and read it. But I, I, I would err on the part of giving if you have the information handy or giving them a referral to a person who can work with them on identifying websites. So much anymore is on internet if they have access to it. And that's that's another point. Um, Librarians tend to always think, well, let's go to the internet. But a lot of people still don't have computers to get to the internet or Wi-Fi. But cell phones, a lot of material on apps are starting to become predominant because it's more universally available, especially in different countries. Uh, Cell phones tend to dominate as the delivery method for information. So there are some great apps. If you go to the app store, you know, and type in health literacy, you'll get terminology apps. You'll get some that talk about explain, I think is one that gives definitions um, and common term for the more Latin term. And I think there's also just a lot of helping people to understand how to look at what's good on the internet and what's not. And especially COVID just keeps coming to mind. I mean, as soon as I heard about someone recommending bleach i just immediately put on my facebook please don't go and drink bleach please you know because i just it's so common for people to trust um leaders and then to follow what they're told so you have to think as a provider that you're really a leader Um, someone's looking to you for your their health information and their health care so what you tell them will be important to them and hopefully remembered by them but anything you can like Electronic medical records are great because they give that after visit summary. And I think those kind of sheets are very important to give to people because it is very customized to their treatment and their visit and then what they're supposed to do with it. I was pleased I went on um, my chart and it did have a link to a lot of Medline Plus information. So that's something we've been working on as librarians, getting good information linked to the electronic health record so that. As providers are using that information, it's easy for them to give out quality information to the patient as well.
0: I feel like we could have a whole episode on design of patient <laughs> materials, but if you could give us just a few tips on if you're making patient materials as your role as a clinician, what are some key features we should keep in mind?
1: Yeah, I, I think you know, keeping a level of the terms fifth grade or lower level is key, not Making it all text based, use a lot of white space or graphics design, you know elements that make it attractive but also um, not overwhelming. Uh, keeping it universal, so you know if you're using once, you're remembering that eleven in someone's mind is what you're saying. so just trying to re um, reread as many times as possible by as many types of people to make sure that content is clear is good now there In that material I gave you, there is a site that actually walks you through if you're designing something with questions and and tips on how to design. And I'm trying to remember which one it was, but I think it was out of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Again, working in different universities, we've had committees that did it for the university's uh, patient ed materials. In fact, at University of Utah, we collected all the patient ed materials one time trying to create an inventory of what the university was using. Talk about a really hard (laughs) nut (laughs) to crack. Um, We unearthed things from 1967, you know, (laughs) that had been Xerox like 20 times with coffee stains or whatever. So it's just, it's really important. For institutions, take a look at what they're providing their patients. And it's a great branding opportunity for institutions too, even if you purchase material from company, being sure to put your brand on it so that people know to come back to you if they need additional information. But there, there, you're right, there, there are lots of opportunities for designing educational materials. Now, we we haven't talked about how to keep up, but there is a great group out of California called the IHA, and they hold an annual conference, and they're going to do this year, virtual, um, in October, and there's a link that I provided to register for that. Um, But it's a great way to learn who's doing what and the latest in health literacy, and there's a lot of material there about how to design content that makes it health literate.
0: I wanted to ask what you think the hardest issue with health literacy is.
1: I really think it's that assessing the understanding of the content that's provided. We just don't have the time in a clinical visit you know if you have the time to inform that's a miracle, but to actually assess then what they understood from that information is almost impossible. So there's a lot of research opportunity out there um, for Figuring out, you know, how do you assess quickly and then also how do you assess the understanding? And I think we're all individual. We all come with our background, our experience, our perceptions, our education, our language, our um, religion. And then to have to assess all that within 10, 15 minutes, plus take care of the problem of health that you're addressing, I think is just uh, overwhelming for, for providers. But Please know that you're not alone and there are people that can help you. And as you get to a new university, if you're a new graduate, seek out the librarians if there's anyone there. If there's patient educator department, a lot of time the health records department has someone that might be able to help as well uh, because of the medical record involvement now with uh, giving out materials. And also public librarians if you're in a very rural Even if you're not in a rural, a lot of people go to the public library and ask health questions when we did an assessment. After financial information questions, health is the next question that comes up in public libraries. So, you know, you have a lot of people that can help you.
0: I wish I had known about all of these resources sooner. I feel like we learned so much in medical school and training that it's really a shame we don't spend more time learning about what health literacy is, having opportunities to practice you know, asking patients about their level of understanding and and teaching to that level. It's really something that should be part of the curriculum. Um, But I'm hoping that this episode helps to reach some, you know, medical student and resident learners and and that they start to become thoughtful about how
1: important health literacy is. I agree. I think um, it's very important. And and to me, it, it can assist all the treatment and all the prevention that you do if people can be a part of that partnership, you know, and feel that they are empowered to be able to do that. And if they're having to do a lot of decision-making on their own, it's even more important that they understand what's happening to them.
0: And I I would be remiss to not ask you about COVID-19's impact on health literacy and what your thoughts are there.
1: Yeah, um, well, I I was thinking the other day, you know, with, with the mask, which I'm hoping everyone's wearing, It doesn't allow people who do have hearing issues or who use lip reading to be able to read, you know, to understand what's being said by following lips. Um, So that is one thing to be cognizant of if you've got the mask on and, and trying to talk to people. I think also there is so much misinformation out there and about what treatments should be applied and I would just encourage anyone with social media, especially if you're a healthcare provider, to just you know tell people go talk to your to your provider before you do any self treatment for COVID nineteen. Um, it's just really um, important that they not abuse their bodies. The other thing is, I think that with telehealth, I'm hoping that this will enable more telehealth uh, to be a common issue past COVID because I think that helps rural people. It helps um, with a lot, you know, the technology that's going to probably continue to be developed with the COVID-19 isolation and people using things like Zoom and podcasts that will be able to get telehealth even more accepted and regulations adopted that allow it to happen. It's just a great opportunity to really look at how people want to help themselves. You know, when I think about this bleach situation, people wanted to do something to make themselves not have COVID-19. So if they knew what the right thing was, they would do that. So that's a great lesson for health literacy is, you know, giving the right information to them in the right context so that they understand what they should be doing.
0: I should stop adding bleach to my tea in the morning. Is that not a, <laughs> I w- a I good preventative? Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> thanks, thanks mm-hmm. for educating me on that one. I will. Uh, I won't add it tomorrow.
1: <laughs> okay, try some sugar. Okay. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I think the best news of COVID nineteen is that it's giving us a lot of um, opportunity to try new things and technology you know, improvements. Who knows? You know, maybe we will have patient education chat rooms for future or um, teleconferences, and that people can join as uh, civilians. I'll say <laughs> mm-hmm. um, to learn more about their health.
0: Yeah, as our our group that take care of kids with diabetes, we do a lot of our teaching in groups, and so obviously with COVID, we couldn't have families get together in one room. And so we converted a lot of our in-person teaching to videos. And we actually made several videos in English and Spanish in a very short period of time. And it almost kind of like lit our fire to improve our patient materials. And I think now having these videos available to families, it's a nice way for them, you know, even when we're back to in-person classes they think there's a lot of value there as well. But now we have something that they can refer back to and it didn't take too long to develop and families really appreciate it. And I hope that other clinicians have experienced the same thing, like they've really had to become innovative and think about
1: how they'll continue that forward. Right. Well, I'm taking my cat to the vet for the first time in a new city and I'm thinking, you know, what do I need to tell a provider there? And it's a situation where you have to you know, give them the cat and you stay in the car. And I'm like, well, how do I transfer all this so quickly? And yeah. so, it, you know, it, it even applies to pet literature, yeah, I guess.
0: definitely. <laughs> Hopefully and they what, don't give her a brochure to read when they exactly. get the home. She's not
1: very good about it, following through, but she does <laughs> like to take the pill and the food. Yeah, <laughs> One thing I didn't mention, but there is a lot of, um, there are a lot of universities that are starting to create health literacy support groups, So I'll call it. We did have a University of Utah group that met like once every quarter, I believe, um, to share information of what they were doing in the area of health literacy. And we actually created a website um, that would list conferences that were available of different professional types and, and then generic ones we would put patient ed material design tips up on it. So there's, um, again, if you're new to a, a, a institution, don't assume that there's nothing out there already done. But if there isn't something available, that's something you can do as a new provider too, is to start a grassroots kind of um, interest in health literacy. And we had actually created a curriculum that we were going to work with the College of Health. And I'm not sure what point that got to, but, um, but there's just so much, uh, and it's a it's a fairly new field, and what I've enjoyed seeing in the last, I'd say, 20 years, is it going from very generic, what is health literacy, and, and what do you do, to very specific journal articles on how to teach a diabetic patient in uh, sub-HERA or what uh, you know, it's, it's gone very branched to more special kind of practice areas, and To me, that shows a growth in the uh, discipline of health literacy. But it it is fairly new, and it's something that I hope more providers will get interested in and take the opportunity to learn. And I appreciate that you've given a lot of providers that opportunity through the podcast.
0: And um, we've talked about a lot of great resources. There was another conference that I wanted to highlight that we had discussed earlier. So the Health Literacy Annual Research Conference, um, which is coming up October 19th to 21st. And this is through the Horowitz Center for Health Literacy at the University of Maryland. And I believe it's an entirely virtual conference. And so I'll be sure to include the link in the show notes. Um, Any comments about that opportunity?
1: Yes, I think it's a partnership now this year with IHA1 that I think they're doing a co-joint. Uh, conference. So I've attended the IHA one about three years and loved it, absolutely loved it. So um, I think a virtual one gives a more opportunity for anyone to attend it, uh, but it usually is quite good at not only the content, but then the getting to know the key players and the information, uh, you know, who's doing what with health literacy. There are also CE courses available. And the content that you have has a um, site for that. So feel, you know, if you go into conferences ever, if we ever get to go back to a real Mm -hmm. conference, um, hopefully there'll be some continuing education courses available in health literacy.
0: And I have one last question for you today that I ask of every guest. So what teaching pearl or piece of advice would you like to leave us with?
1: The key thing is to remember that anyone can have a health literacy issue at any time. And it's never, um, you can't tell by color of the skin, by the language, by the education. It's just the person is bringing, like I mentioned earlier, everything to your visit, all their background, all their perceptions. If they have someone who they seek guidance from and they inform them to do something different than you are, you may have to work through that. Um, But just treat everyone as an individual as you are taught to do. And health literacy is the same thing. It's it's very uh, individualistic and very specific to, the, to what somebody will bring to that uh, conversation.
0: Thank you so much for sharing your time with us and your expertise. I feel really fortunate that I came across your
1: name and that you were willing to come and talk to me today. Well, thank you. And I was thrilled that you found me. And I feel that there are just, as other librarians out there, would just want to help so much. So never hesitate to ask a librarian for help
0: <laughs> for your knowledge as well
1: as for your patient knowledge.
0: Well, thank you so much for being here today. Thank yeah. you. Please send any comments or suggestions to teachinginmedicinepodcast at gmail.com. Please like us on Facebook and Instagram and follow us on Twitter at TeachingInmed.